0: Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. We are about to do something we have never done before. The Sandbox Cooperative Podcast is going on a summer road trip.
1: Summer road trip. That's right. Starting this coming Sunday morning, May 29th, we are driving from Minnesota to San Francisco to LA to Denver and back to Minnesota in just seven days. You heard it first. We are morons.
0: <laughs> Officially. <laughs> we, we're going to log over 5,000 miles. We're going to gather about 15 interviews and down countless buckets of coffee and probably be eating our weight in Twizzlers and beef jerky. All while
1: I have control of the radio.
0: I What? <laughs> I'm not going. Yeah, I didn't well, agree to
1: that. Well, you signed out in the fine print. Uh, <sighs> man by the end of the trip we'll have matching neck tattoos and uh it'll be disturbing (laughs) (laughs) that would be disturbing (laughs) and the smell of it anyways seriously though we're going this is going to be so much fun we're going to be catching up with some old friends like mark scandrette who was on one of our first live events And we'll be introducing you to some new ones as well. We can't wait to share our list of interviews and topics as soon as we get them finalized. Also, we want to be interacting with all of you from the road through Facebook and Twitter. We'll be doing Facebook live events, posting pictures from the trip, and asking for input for interviews along the way. Between Sunday, May 29th, and Saturday, June 4th, make sure to
0: check in and let us know what you're thinking as we go. But for now... Welcome to episode 21 of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast, Life in Real Time. Welcome to the Sandbox. Ever since we started this podcast, we had this idea that we would do an episode about the end of life. We finally made that a reality as we recently spent the better part of a day at Seasons Hospice, a community-based freestanding nonprofit hospice here in Rochester, Minnesota. They provide end-of-life care for patients in their own home as well as at the residential hospice facility. Care is provided regardless of the religion or spirituality of the patient or family. In addition to end-of-life care, they provide education for the broader community, which is part of why we are bringing this episode to you today. We talked with a social worker, a doctor, music therapist, a bereavement specialist, just to name a few. We were absolutely captivated by these conversations, and we ended up with something that we didn't anticipate. We set out to do one episode, and we ended up with two. And we set out to talk about death, but honestly learned more about life. In this episode, we're excited to introduce you to three of the people we met, social worker Julie Asif, chaplain Lincoln Engelbert, and as we begin, you'll hear the voice of medical director Mike Misik.
2: My name is Mike Misick. I'm the medical director here at Seasons Hospice. Um, my job—I have a lot, a lot of different jobs. One of my job is to really help manage symptoms. So, to to um, for complicated pain, complicated other symptoms, to um, that I'm the person they call. Of course, I have other people who can help me, but ultimately, and so uh, when 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 there is a challenging case, when we can help that. Uh, to, to have what what you might call a, a good death or a better death, um, that's satisfying to me. Mm-hmm. A big part of my job is to support the other caregivers, so I don't see all the patients. I'm not I'm not one on one with patients like I am in family practice, but I do know their cases. I do meet some of some of them. I'm able to meet any of them that need 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 me to come see them. But it's really supporting supporting the team. So um, for. For some of our patients, it's the nurse, a particular nurse, or the nursing in general that really makes a difference. It may be uh, the chaplain or the social worker. It may be getting that disability parking permit. It may be getting that long-term care insurance. It may be the pet therapy. It may be the music therapy or the massage therapy that uh, that makes a big difference in that person. So just being part of the organization that I know is doing the best we can, making a difference, it can be any of us. It's not about who, it's just about... Um, that can make a difference for people. So if people get better, you know, with some of our patients, about 10% of our patients leave our program because they're not dying anymore, that that's in some many ways can be a success. Their symptoms have improved. They're, for whatever reason, their disease is not so bothersome. Uh, or if they do pass away, to know that they had the family and that they had the, a, good, a good death or a, a better death than they could have had. So... One of the things I, I, I hear
1: as you're talking is you're describing community, and and the value of community in the dying process. Uh, you know, you could call it team, but it's it's part of the team that's here at this organization. But it's mm-hmm. also the family. It's also uh, their neighbors and friends as well. It's just this mm-hmm. whole community of people who come together around a person, mm-hmm. saying that no. Uh, maybe dignity uh, and and dying in, with dignity means dying uh surrounded by these all of these people mm-hmm. uh, and these working working parts in a sense i would guess
3: mm-hmm. uh,
1: it's a beautiful beautiful thing i the other thing i wonder is you know you said what you love about your job and i think it's a community what what frustrates you about this
2: yeah, the, uh, the, 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 the hard parts are when people aren't comfortable or when those, mm-hmm. when, when those symptoms aren't managed. Again, that, that's an, a large part of what I do. So those, uh, there's a few that are quite challenging, and so we work hard at it. And, and uh, ultimately, I hope we're successful 99% of the time uh, or m- more, but, but it can be hard. And so I lose mm-hmm. sleep sometimes trying to worry about what's the best thing to do for a particular individual to help them get through this. So that, that's, the challenges are there. I mean, but, but that's true in any part, any, any, any occupation sure. uh, that I see or, or any, 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 any job in medicine. So, so some of those sicker, sicker patients. And then some of the families that have, a, uh, patients and families that have a difficult psychosocial challenge ahead of them. Yeah. The family may be estranged. The communication may not be good. A um, lot of feelings, a lot of issues. Helping those, that can be hard for all of us when just to work through that with people.
0: Hospice requires medical care, expertise, science, and technical know-how. Mike has all of that, but in listening to him talk, he also has a keen understanding that this is only part of the equation. It's only a part of the picture of care. Hospice work also takes caring for the family of the patient, working through grief, and caring for the spirit. That's not a small task.
1: Right, Chris. It's a team effort. It takes community. It takes all hands on deck to accompany one another through this journey of life. Mike talks clearly about it, and so did everyone else that we talked
3: with.
4: Well, my name is Julie Assef, and I'm a social worker. My role here is as admissions coordinator. So I work with a nurse, and together we are the f- often the first contact for people and help them figure out if this is the right choice for them and what the program has to offer and kind of go from there to get them enrolled.
1: So you're meeting with patients and families, mm-hmm. and often in a hospital setting, or is it home? Sometimes hospital, other times all of the it,
4: above. <laughs> yeah,
1: wherever yes. it works.
4: A call can come in from um, a social worker at the hospital or a physician caring for the patient. It might be a nurse in a nursing home where the person lives. Sometimes it's the patient themselves who are calling in and saying. Mm-hmm. You know, it sounds like it might be time for me to start on hospice, or it might be a family member. We've gotten calls from pastors, um, home health aides, those kinds of things, home health nurses usually. So anybody can make that initial call. It requires a physician's order eventually to allow us to go in and and start doing care. But whoever starts the conversation, I guess, Mm -hmm. is, is the one that we start with.
1: Is there a common misconception about what you do?
4: I think so. I yeah. think, I don't know if it's common, but it, it's, uh, you know, we come up against myths all mm. the time about hospice. I think the first thing um, that we are always trying to overcome is the fact that people don't want to talk about us or certainly to us, you know, until they have absolutely no other choices. And that means for us that people come to us later in their journey than, than they might have, you know, so they miss the opportunity to get from hospice what they can to, to have the best kind of care Mm -hmm. and all the other services that you've probably been hearing about. So that's the first thing is that, is that uh, it's hard to meet with us because usually when people have met with us, they're so thankful, even if it's not time for them yet, they're really grateful to know that there is a plan B, you know, Mm -hmm. that there's something that they can tap into later Um, and another thing is that um, it's depressing to have hospice services you know and that's that's hopefully something that from talking with us you can see that that we while we realize that this is an intensely intimate and important time in life and can be very sad it's also precious time and people often have their eyes so wide open about the value of life and the meaning of life and the importance of the little things during this time that we have a lot to learn from them and in turn we try to give them back enough comfort so that their energy can go toward enjoying their lives. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a really uplifting thing, a really um, positive experience for them and and for us as caregivers too because we you know we learn to kind of regroup and, and set the lens differently.
1: And and people that I've known over the years who uh, have, have been a part of hospice care, there's this energy around it that uh, on the part of some friends and family who are a part of that person's community mm-hmm. who talk in terms and sometimes overt terms of, well, they've, they've just given up.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that something that you you face?
4: I hear that all the time.
1: Yeah.
4: Not usually from the patient that we're taking care of, but from people who are afraid to have them consider hospice or afraid to have hospice come and talk to them. Yeah. You know, can you come and talk to my dad, but don't tell him you're from hospice because that will upset him, you know. And then my question would be, what does your dad know about his illness and what is he saying to you about how he wants his care managed going forward you know take that Mm -hmm. word hospice out of it but let's just talk about the realities of of those two things what's happening and what does he want and kind of take it from there and slowly they realize okay the the word is a barrier but you know the the reality is that it's a good fit Mm
2: -hmm. so
4: so the giving up part you know i think is is I guess in my experience, probably more myth than reality there, you know, there's emotional giving up, but there's also the fact that eventually our bodies all, you know, do things that we maybe wish they wouldn't, but, but they start to die, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And so it, in my mind, it's not giving up to recognize that, that things are heading in that direction and to, to intentionally decide how, how do I want that to go for me? You know, what services do I want to bring in to support my family? And again, it's not that once you sign on for hospice, you know, you're faced with this 24-hour, seven-day-a-week gloom and doom talk about, well, it's one day closer to your death now today, you know. (laughs) It's not how we approach this Mm -hmm. at all. Once we get the basics figured out and figure out that we're a good good match, most days are about what's going to make today as good as it can be for you. Yeah. and you know not everybody who signs on hospice even stays on hospice they start to do better and nationally studies have shown that people with certain conditions actually even live longer on hospice than without hospice so so the idea of electing hospice is giving up and just letting yourself die is is probably one of the greatest myths that we are up against
1: something that uh, that I heard you say is uh, you know what can we do today to make today the best. Right. Could I have somebody come to my house every day <laughs> <laughs> and help me with that? Because shouldn't, that would be great.
4: <laughs> shouldn't we all think that every single day of our lives? But that right. that's just the thing is that is that when people realize that their time may be limited, it's sometimes they're remarkably more clear about the answer to that question. Yeah. You know, and and the the value of every single day just takes on a whole new meaning. And that, that, boy, that's part, as a, as a person delivering the care, that is one of the lessons that we learn every single day. Yeah. It's pretty profound, isn't
1: it? A sense of clarity and, mm-hmm. uh, and the gift that today is, mm-hmm. and that that gift may not be there tomorrow.
4: And you see, and you see the answer moving over time. You know, the answer may not be the same two weeks from now because the situation is different. Maybe today it's get me to the casino and two weeks from now it's get me to the porch. You know, let Mm -hmm. me, let me open my window and look outside. So, so the answer changes, but part of the beauty is that you're giving them control over that and, and helping that person feel like they have some choices in how to make this a good day.
1: Okay, yeah, but seriously, I want Julie or somebody coming over to help me figure out every morning what needs to happen in order to make today the best that it can be. And what, what a great way to live, whether you have lots of days or maybe even just
0: a few. Yeah, I don't know why we don't just ask ourselves that all the time. You know, it actually reminds me a little bit. I was at an, an interfaith dialogue event in town earlier this week. And what I hear Julie offering in that question is like something that the rabbi at this event said. She spoke about beginning the day with prayer, and that the purpose in that ritual is just to recognize the gift of each day and to realize that we're already ahead. Um, And if it's already a gift to go through the day, you know, how much different might it be to see things that way?
1: Yeah, it's almost like we're operating under this false assumption or maybe illusion that tomorrow is guaranteed for any of us. And tomorrow is not. Guarantee, And yet, you know, we act like it is. And so if we are intentional about the gift that we have today and living into that gift, how different would it be?
3: Well, I'm Lincoln Engelbert. I'm one of the chaplains here at Seasons Hospice.
1: So uh, you're a hospice chaplain. Uh,
3: what does that mean? Say <laughs> see, see more about that. What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting because Medicare dictates that spiritual care is provided to all hospice patients or made available to all hospice patients. They Medicare dictates that. Medicare dictates wow. four core uh, disciplines. that You need a medical director, an MD, okay. and then RNs, social workers, and spiritual care, and seasons chooses to work with chaplains. Not all hospices use chaplains. Some use uh, licensed clinical social workers to provide spiritual care. And my role here is, as a chaplain, to provide complementary and supportive care to the patients and their families who ask for, directly, specifically ask for chaplain care when offered as as an option. Okay. Uh, they don't have to take a chaplain, and historically about 50% of the families that we care for want a chaplain. Okay. So many, most of the others are really well cared for by their home church, uh, which is the beautiful thing about Southern Minnesota is the the churches are very, very active in providing care. And so we always work alongside with and supportive of the church's own role and ministry and uh, never want to supplant the relationship that it, that the family or the patient has with their own church. Sure. So people, uh, in
1: a sense, opt into the spiritual care that, that you would provide uh, uh, just by saying, you know, yeah, this is important to us.
3: Yeah. At admission, they ask, you know, is, is your spirituality something that's important to you, and would you like our chaplain to, to visit or call? I'm not exactly sure how they ask the question, mm-hmm. Um but we we get into you know many many homes and and visit folks at the facilities, the nursing homes and memory care units here in town.
1: And I've heard it described, and uh, that being with somebody at the end of life is is a holy moment, um, and and uh, something that's an uh, in a sense an honor to be a part of that. Uh, how, would you agree with that? What would you say about that?
3: I have I have from the very beginning understood that. Um, it is an honor and a privilege to be invited into a family story when they are at their most vulnerable mm. facing death. Because there are a lot of questions about death, of course, sure. uh, which is why you're doing this podcast. Yeah, A um, lot, of, lot of uncomfortableness with it in our culture especially. And is it okay to say it's okay to die? Is it okay to embrace death as a part of life? Well, yes, it is, because it is a part of life. And uh, to be with somebody as they journey, not just at that final moment, but to be with them as they process Mm -hmm. what's important to them, what has been important to them, where have they found meaning and value in their life, to be invited in to participate in those stories Mm -hmm. is just an absolutely sacred honor. Yeah. that uh, there's a lot of laughter and, and humor and, and, you know, a lot of joking around. But at the same time, there's a dignity that's maintained in the, in that. And and the, the, the beauty of each person is valued and acknowledged, and it's a beautiful experience.
1: There aren't a lot of people who would say, who would, on the outside looking in, would say, wait, 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 he just said there's a lot of laughing and joking and carrying <laughs> on. So... <laughs> what is that because I've experienced that as well what would you but you've been around uh, so many more of these experiences than I ever have uh, and probably
3: ever will uh, what
1: is that all about
3: well I think my my experience as a hospice chaplain in California was very different because people in California if they weren't on hospice for a minimum of two months we considered it kind of a failure mm. because for whatever reason, California is more proactive in bringing people into the hospice experience. And so you join with the family while there's still a lot of life going on. Mm-hmm. And one person here said hospice should not be called end of life care. It should be called end of life fulfillment. Mm. And that's where the stories are told and meaning is made and relationships are brought up to speed and made current again estranged family members may choose to reconnect. Um, daughters, this is a California experience where two daughters came together to provide end-of-life support and care to their mother. And, and one of them told me after the funeral, she said, well, that's the last time I'll see my sister as long as we live. Hmm. And, but for their mother, they came together and fulfilled her wish that her daughters would get along for a season. Wow. So the story was long enough. Unfortunately, California is kind of the outlier in how long hospice is used. We call it end of life care. Uh, Dr. Ira Bayek, who is a uh, advocate, and he's a medical doctor, advocate for hospice nationwide, says that the way it is used in most cases is brink of death care. Okay. And when it's brink of death care, the humor isn't there so much. Sure, um, someone may tell a funny story about mom or dad. You know, mom is unresponsive in the bed, and the family's telling their stories, and they might find a smile, mm-hmm. but it's usually followed by a few tears too. Mm-hmm. But that's the sacredness of the moment, right? And to be invited in to participate Ooh. in that family story, it's it's awe inspiring. Mm-hmm. In, and, and just amazing.
1: In what ways does, I mean, we're here in Rochester, Minnesota, and, you know, in the Shadow of Mayo Clinic and so many uh, physicians, and, and it feels like the whole thrust of, of this culture here is to get people well again. Uh, and, and, and that's not just unique to Rochester. I mean, that's the... The culture in our, particularly in, I would say in our country, is, is just that youth, health, vitality. Uh, the work that you're doing is, is so countercultural to that end. Uh, could you say some more about that, that kind of countercultural piece?
2: I think medicine in general and the Mayo Clinic is a good example of that, is, is coming around to the idea to recognizing the role of palliative care. And hospice is just one small part of that. And so it's it's something that is growing. It's, in this community, it's grown tremendously in the past 10 years. Um, and the Mayo Clinic has been a leader in that. I think they're they're doing wonderful work with really dealing with really sick people, many of whom who come here from all over the world for for the, the next chance, the best chance to get better. Mm. Of course, they do get better. But when they don't get better, they're, Mayo Clinic's done really good work at introducing palliative care, which is really sitting down and being honest about you know where are we at with, with our prognosis? Where are we at with the treatments? At some point, these treatments aren't going to work anymore. What are your goals? Having all those conversations, mm-hmm. and so I think I think they're doing well. The, Minnesota is a leader, I think, in that area, but our whole country and ho- eventually the whole world, uh, you know, needs to is needing to deal with that and and is dealing with that. Mm-hmm. We know that um, as our population ages and um, it's going to be a big part of the or the future as we can do so many wonderful things to, to mm-hmm. c- treat and cure people eventually those people still will get mm-hmm. a disease that can't be treated right. so uh, is they they're kind of complementary you know you, you get treatment to the point you can um, and then at some mm-hmm. point um, the need for palliative care increases and at some point the need mm-hmm. for hospice increases so yeah,
1: yeah. so there's one question uh, question we've asked everybody who's come through and and it's is there one story in particular uh, that has been particularly moving or powerful to you that's 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 touched you in some way
4: there are hundreds of stories from yeah. me. i've been at this almost 20 years so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um i can remember a story from very early on a patient that i had and this was when i was still learning what it meant to be a hospice social worker you know and it and we, you you kind of come into any kind of new work especially where it's um intimate and you're you're kind of out there with you know um just the piano in the background instead of the whole band you know what Mm -hmm. i mean it's just you and that patient and and i was still kind of learning how how to best be with people in their own homes i'd worked in hospitals and nursing homes, but to go into somebody's home and have them feel comfortable enough to open up and talk with you. So I remember going to see a patient, and um, every one of my visits, it was just kind of, there wasn't much to it. You know, she didn't seem real comfortable having me there. She didn't really know what to do with me, and I wasn't sure what to ask her to help her kind of open up a little bit. She was a very um, stoic person. And one day, I was there for a visit, and I was having one of those kind of, okay, well, I guess that's all you need from me today, so I'm going to go, kind of, I didn't feel like I had done much. And I said, is there anything more that you would want me to do before I leave? And she said, I'd love some pancakes. And I thought, Pancakes, huh? (laughs) I'm not sure that I can justify that on my time card, but I think I can. (laughs) So the story goes that we made pancakes together. And as we were doing that together, she began to tell me so much about herself because we were involved in an activity, engaged in something that was important to her. And It was about her it wasn't about her illness and it wasn't about me you know sitting across the room from her and and acting like a you know professional that knew more than she did it was just two women in the kitchen cooking pancakes i heard about her husband i heard about her travels i heard Mm. about her childhood and it taught me something you know really profound in my mind that day is that you know, it's the little—it's the little things that become the big things, and and you don't have to go in deciding that you have something to say because you're not the one that has to talk. Um, you have to go in with an open heart and just be ready to listen and let that person tell you what they need from you. So. That was a big day for me. I drove home thinking, I made pancakes, (laughs) but it was so much more. So that's, that's a story that has always been precious to me.
1: The little things that become the big things. The little
4: things are the big things. Yeah. And,
1: uh, and then you discover what's, what's behind the thing altogether.
4: Yes. Hmm. I think I burned two pancakes too, which was okay too. (laughs) She, I let her be better at it than I was. (laughs) So.
1: Well, thank you so much, Julian. Sure, really appreciate it.
4: Absolutely, yeah, thank you. You bet.
3: What is one story in particular that was was powerful for you? There are so many many stories. Yeah. Uh, can I share two? <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> one lady had had uh, been very very active up into her eighties, and then she had some event, undefined event. But her body basically just quit working, but her mind was still really, really good. And she, why am I still here? Why am I still here? Why can't I go back to the life that I had before? I was having fun. And uh, one day I went to see her, and she was actively dying. Knew that she wasn't going to be with us much longer. And I just said, today's the day it would appear that your questions are going to be answered. Mm-hmm. And I started to read from Scripture where Paul says, The day for my departure is at hand. Mm-hmm. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my race. And as I was reading that passage, she opened her eyes, took one last breath, and was gone. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a sacred moment yeah. that, that I will cherish yeah. to be a part of that. And another lady, they said I could use her name, the family said I could use her name, it's so beautiful, Petra Salgado. Hmm. She was a four foot 10 Catholic lady out in California, Hispanic, (laughs) and she had cancer. And she was quite stable for a period of time and then her cancer compromised uh, another system that it became obvious she was gonna die. And I sat at her bedside one day and I said, Petra, are you afraid of dying? She looked me straight in the eye and said, well, yeah, I've never done this before. (laughs) And then she said, but the God who has gotten me this far will get me the rest of the way. Mm.
2: Mm.
3: And I use that story an awful lot because Mm. that is such a marvelous expression of my fear of the unknown and uncertainty mixed with the legacy of my faith experiences with God, and together I can come to a place where it's going to be okay. It's going be all right. And what a a great way in that moment that not only
1: was she saying where her heart was, but she was, in a sense, ministering to you, and through that story has probably touched countless lives.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, and my, my, my great hope, since I'm a relatively healthy young man, my great hope is that I can face my own mortality with the same grace that I see in the patients that I visit.
1: As Lincoln, Mike, and Julie told their stories, I kept hearing them describe what I call holy moments, holy, sacred moments. And people tend to think, such things take place at a church or, or during a worship service or mediated through some kind of professional religious person like a pastor, a, a priest, a rabbi, a deacon, or, or somebody like that. But oftentimes, they happen when we least expect it. Holy, by definition, means to be set apart or, or dedicated in some fashion. With regard to holy moments, we are reminded not all time is created equally. Some time, some moments are holy, set apart, filled with intention, energy, the profound understanding of the presence of the other, the presence of God. And while they might happen at a church or in a worship service, or maybe with a professional religious person on hand, Sometimes, maybe even most times, they happen in other ways, in other places and moments. I hear that with our friends at Seasons Hospice, sitting with someone who's coming to the end of their days, living each day to its fullest, telling stories, creating meaning and understanding, connecting deeply and profoundly with family and friends, neighbors, loved ones. Saying goodbye as one lives and as one dies. That is holy, sacred time. Time set apart. Time infused with the very presence and breath of God. As we said at the outset, we went in search of an episode about dying and we learned about living. Perhaps there's a lesson for all of us in here. Maybe we all need to be better about setting time apart for those we love the most and intentionally being present with them. Tomorrow is not guaranteed for any of us. So maybe we can make some holy time for a dinner or for a walk, a conversation, a game, a drink, a laugh. Holy time with those we love the most. There is no need to wait till we are dying. Part of living is experiencing life in real time and being open to the everyday holy moments.
0: Thanks for listening to this first half of Life in Real Time here on the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. We have so much more territory to explore with our friends at Seasons Hospice, and we'll share part two of this conversation in a couple weeks. Also, don't forget the Sandbox Summer Road Trip is
1: coming soon, and we want to take you all along virtually as we head out in a few days. You don't want to miss out on this. You will get all the fun of a road trip without the drag of the awful stench. This trip will be fun, but it will be more fun if you check in with us and participate in the conversation. Chris, how can they
0: do that? Well, we'll be posting regularly on Facebook and Twitter. We'll occasionally be sharing video live via Facebook from the road. And we'll be sharing ideas we're learning from guests and friends of the show. In all of this, let us know what you think about what we're up to. If there are any questions you'd like us to ask our podcast guests, or even if there are road trip games you'd want us to play. Again, we'll be on the road between Minnesota and California from Sunday, May 29th to Saturday, June 4th. And we hope you can join us through the interwebs. So we'll be in touch. In addition to social media, don't forget
1: to sign up for our email updates. And if you like what you hear, share the podcast with a friend. This is important for us and allows others to become more connected to the Sandbox Cooperative as well. Until next time, thanks for listening. See ya.
4: Bye. Please watch your step as you
3: exit the Sandbox.